0: And welcome to the introduction for episode 112 of Crow 777 Radio. I have Jason Lingren with me today. We're going to be laying down a lot of information about the idea of natural law, common law, some admiralty law. But in the second hour, we're even going to push it up into banking. And the reason for that is is because there's no separating the idea of what a bank is in the, in the modern era from what the idea of a court is. As a matter of fact, in the second hour, Jason brought this definition, words have meaning, to the table. Here's the definition of a bank from Black's Law Dictionary. A bank, a bench or a seat, the bench of justice the bench or tribunal occupied by the judges, the seat of judgment, a court. That is the definition for B-A-N-K bank. And then it is pointed out that B-A-N-C would refer more tightly with common law, but I can't even recall the word B-A-N-C being written in front of me for as long as I can remember. We see B-A-N-K, we equate that with monetary institutions, But here the definition, the legal definition I just read, it's indistinguishable from a court of law. What we're seeking to do here is further the information base until we can get another expert guest in, hopefully this next time around, where we can finally, hopefully, try to find some remedies for those times when we may find ourselves pulled before the magistrate. There has to be remedies out there that we can put confidence behind instead of finding ourselves in a court and feeling like we're being attacked with no way to escape. Anyhow, this is a heck of an episode, man. There truly is no distinguishing between the idea of commerce, currency, money, banking, and legal courts of the modern era. It's a hell of a thing, man. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren for episode 112. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 112. Uh, We've been on a kind of a mission here, and it all has to do with the law. It seems that there may be things we can do in life that we weren't aware of not so long ago that uh, help us out with regard to the law. And I would ask, you know, when you're thinking about the law... Why should we be concerned with protecting ourselves from the law when probably the basic idea of true law should be that it's protecting the people? But before we get into it, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So we've been on quite a stretch here, and we're not walking away from it yet. Um, I don't feel like we know enough. I don't feel like we've gotten far enough down the road. And I want some more remedies.
1: How about you? I want remedies, and I want to understand it better. And that's what we're going to try and do today.
0: You know... How would it be to get, like, a retired judge or something like that? That would be, for me, that would really be quite a thing, if it's even possible. But what do we have in the intro before we jump in here? Jason, do you have anything?
1: No, but you need to discuss the website changes. Right. And the shows you've been on.
0: Um, I did Sun and Moon Family United, which I do every few weeks. I always get emails uh, from the kind person who runs that. And I'm happy to show up when I can. I want to start getting out onto shows in communities that probably uh, I wouldn't normally have much to do with. And, you know, it's kind of crazy. You do these things or you have a guest on and people try to judge you based on, you know, the work the other people have done. And it's kind of well, let me say this. You know, if you want to reach new audiences and offer the option of the things we're covering, this is how it's done. Um, and we re- really need to move away from the idea of calling everyone a shiller wrong. Uh, what this comes down to is the exchange of ideas. So uh, I want to get that out. But anyhow, The website, and by the way, Jason, thank you for all the work you put in on this episode because I have, in fact, been slammed with the website. Uh, The website is a whole new day for uh, all the members and the people who may become members. I've done everything I can to pull us out from the idea that the EU has the power to dictate how we're using the internet. Uh, By their rules, if a single user of my site Uh, resides in an EU state or country, then I am somehow pulled under EU guidelines, and I beg to differ. Having said that, the site is now away from that as much as I can make it be away from that. We've done a number of things to the site. I won't delineate them all, but the load times are going to be lickety split. Uh, We won't have to be concerned with CPU anymore because I'm not sharing uh, the, the server space. Um, The RSS will be worked out. That's been a constant problem because of hackers and what hackers like to do with RSS. Um, That will be worked out. There will be new players and since so many of the users you know, I don't even like that word. So many of, of the members of Crow 777 Radio are on handhelds. We are going to have one of the quickest sites going. We are going to do a number of things to increase load time. Not only that. As I was doing the switch over to the new site, I proved outright that the stats we get from places like media servers and Google are just nonsense. Uh, For those who have anything to do with these places, you'll remember a few months ago, everyone realigned their algorithms on how they report site traffic and basically, at the time, say... One week or one day I had 5,000 visits. That number was cut in half overnight with the new rules that were supposedly being adopted by Google. But having said that, I can demonstrate during this move that my Libsyn media server, which is serving the audio for the show, does not jive with what Google claims the numbers are. Um, In other words, What is happening here is now when you go to a place to serve media, you pay for the weight of the media. Historically, this is not the way it was done. You paid for bandwidth. If a million people came to see Anything I upload now they don't even care and I'll tell you why it is you pay for the weight of a file and a million people can come see it and the reason is is the perception of everyone online is how many views how many hits how popular and that is the thing being manipulated and again with all the new site upgrades and the move uh, I'll be out from under all that and particularly the the EU nonsense anything to add there
1: Jason the. Stats thing is something that we've been discussing for ages and the fact that everything's being skewed. We're not exactly sure where or how, but it's obvious that the numbers that we're getting reported to us are definitely not accurate so that we don't have an accurate gauge of what kind of viewership and listenership we actually have, and neither can anyone else who actually wants to take a look at us. So that's very important to point out to people that there is deliberate skewing. And a great example of that is when they took you out on YouTube for however long that was, I forget, a few days. The search engine results got horrendously skewed.
0: Well, what happens um, when they take out a YouTube channel, what they're in essence doing is they're about to scrub search returns on you. That's part of what they're doing. In my case, I was down for two or three weeks, I forget. So when you did a search on Crow777, there were millions of search returns, literally millions of search returns. Um, The day that I came back, uh, my YouTube channel was reinstated, which they never notified me. They notified me with a copyright strike, by the way. (laughs) of all things. I I went from millions of returns on Crow 777 on the internet down to 6,000 the day that I came back. Right now in the United States, if you do a search, you'll get in the neighborhood of 70,000. But you can see what's happened. If you, if anyone listening goes out, puts the words lunar wave into a search engine, they will get millions of returns. If you put Crow777, the guy who discovered the lunar wave on the tail of that search, it will go down to thousands. So you can see what's going on here. They are controlling information by controlling the perception of popularity and search returns. So now I'm on my own server. I will not have to guess Uh, what the numbers are. I will absolutely know, and I can basically base this on how many people listen to the files alone. But anyhow, Jason, uh, anything else we want to cover before we jump into natural law versus common law so that we can further uh, offer information out to people to set a foundation so that they can understand that there is a lot to know and good reasons to know uh, what's going on in our world with regard to the law we are currently under?
1: in case anyone doesn't know, we're on Facebook. We have a page and we have a group and that's seeing really good success. Not to mention the fact that we have an Apple app and an Android app. So our our reach is out there besides having an independent website and then the YouTube channel. So we're out there, people are hearing us and I, I suspect it's tens of thousands of people every week. And again, it's just really hard to exactly prove how much right at the moment and Hopefully, with the changes that you've been making, we'll get a much more accurate picture of just how many minds we are helping week to week.
0: Right. And and again, now that I've got my own private things, um, and by the way, on the website, I'm going to post that this is private property and, and and say I do not give permission for data collection and all this other nonsense. The EU is, is driving this. But absolutely, Jason, we're reaching a lot more people than you're ever going to determine from stats. You and I just had a conversation with a place that was uh, interested in maybe running some of our content, and they asked me for stats. And so I gave them my best view uh, using logic and putting together what I know on my end versus what anyone who looks at what Google or Libsyn is saying which is absolutely incorrect data that cuts the numbers down drastically. But anyhow, that's enough of that. Um, Let's get ready to jump in here, Jason. This is an interesting episode and it will give people a lot of information to know a little bit more about the law, specifically in this episode, Natural Law and Common Law. And we're going to come back again next week and try to get more into remedies and more into how we can protect ourselves if we find ourselves drugged before the magistrate. But before we jump in, before I hand it over to you, for a long time, over and over, I've told people the method I use to try to determine whether the ring of truth is anything or whether if I'm trying to determine if something is nonsense. The first step that I use, I've boiled it down as simply as I can, is determine The thing that you're looking at or thinking about, is it made by nature or is it made by men? As I've said so often, uh, there is no lie in nature. So you need to keep these things in mind. Uh, There is a natural law, and so seemingly there is no lie in the ideas behind a thing like that. But on the flip side, most of the law we have to deal with now are made by men. It can be tracked back to Rome. And let me tell you something. It's almost like anyone faced in a legal situation is forced to try to protect themselves from the law. And this seems like a backwards world to me. But anyhow, it's all you, Jason.
1: So, of course, we've been talking about the whole straw man identity and how all these crazy laws affect each and every one of us every single day. One of the things that gets mentioned an awful lot is something called Black's Law Dictionary. And I don't think any of us or our guests have ever actually taken the time to mention what is this thing that everyone's always referencing. So, here it is. Black's Law Dictionary is the most widely used law dictionary in the United States. It was founded by Henry Campbell Black, who lived from 1860 to 1927. It is the reference of choice for terms in legal briefs and court opinions and has been cited as a secondary legal authority in many U.S. Supreme Court cases. The latest editions, including abridged and pocket versions, are useful starting points for the layman or student when faced with an unfamiliar legal term.
0: So here it is. You know, we say often words have meaning. What do they call it? Black's Law Dictionary. Not Happy Jack's Law Dictionary. It's Black's Law Dictionary. Of course, it's cited to be someone's last name. But words do, in fact, have meaning. And on the face of understanding that there is a law dictionary called Black's, which is even called Secondary Law in, in some usages, goes to show you what's gone on here. We have a dictionary for the English language, yet that dictionary means bupkis when we are talking in legalese. We need a whole other dictionary to define these terms. And it goes to show that when a person is drugged before the magistrate and they are hearing what seems to be English spoken in the courtroom, in fact, it is not the English you are familiar with. And that is why there is a whole other dictionary set to define what this mysterious legal language means when people are seemingly speaking
1: English. Right. They seem to be using the same words you and I are using right now. However, these words may in fact have very drastically different meanings with very possible consequences that you might not like if you use them incorrectly. So we're going to start going through some of these terms and apply it to what a lot of the things that our guests have been saying and just try and paint a more clear, defined picture of everything that we've been discussing the past few weeks.
0: What you're about to do is to demonstrate flat out the difference between the English we think we understand and the, we'll just call it legalese, that's used in a courtroom. And it's underhanded. All of it's underhanded. Why do we need to go into a court and understand a whole different language? Why do we feel like we need to protect ourselves from the law when the idea of law probably should be that it's protecting the people or the human beings? But anyhow, go
1: ahead, man. So what is natural person, the definition, according to Blacks? A human being, naturally born, versus a legally generated judicial person. So right there in Black's Law Dictionary, you have a separation between these two terms and states of being.
0: Right. And you can see the scheming, you know, the underhanded nature of it. Why does anyone need to be told what a natural person is? And for that matter, anyone ever put in front of the magistrate is naturally born. They're a living human being. And yet here we have, we got to define the difference between a naturally born living person, which each and every one of us is, um, versus this legal idea. And right there from the get go, you can understand what's going on because in almost every court case you are ever going to be involved in, you are not being considered a naturally born human being. You're being, you know, considered the judical-generated person or the judicially-generated person, the legal fiction.
1: Now, what is the definition, according to blacks, of a judicial person? An entity such as a firm other than a natural person or human being created by law and recognized as a legal entity having distinct identity, legal personality, and duties and rights – Also called artificial person, juridical entity, juristic person, or legal person. See also body corporate. So once again, without even looking up the term straw man, because I don't think that's actually in there from what I could find, we've found that these entities in a legal paper sense do in fact exist right there in black and white.
0: Yeah, I would point out as I went at the straw man, what I found is it's still being written in the old Roman language of Latin. It's straw manius homo, which I included in the last title. But but here it is. I mean, uh, the, the very last reference from this dictionary entry tells you to go see also the body corporate. Well, the prefix of the word corp tells you what you're dealing with here. You're dealing with a lifeless thing, a thing that has no life, a corpse. Um, to be blunt about it. And so here's where it begins. Here's where the web starts to be weaved, where legal fictions that have no basis in reality are going to be brought to bear. And again, the average person who's standing in front of the judge, most of them will never understand that they are not being viewed as a naturally born person standing there. And the things they say and do are going to supposedly give life to this, for lack of a better term, Uh, juristic person, this legal fiction. Anyhow, man. And the
1: term person keeps getting used, so what is the definition of that? A man considered according to the rank he holds in society, with all the rights to which the place he holds entitles him, and the duties which it imposes. A human being considered as capable of having rights and of being charged with duties, while a thing is the object over which rights may be exercised. So
0: this is confusing as hell, but from the get-go, it's basically talking about a caste system, isn't it? It's saying, well, you know, we're going to rank you according to the rank you hold. And then it talks about entitlement. And as we Covered in Clint's episode, the idea of entitlement is almost certainly tied to bloodlines, where just being born with a certain name entitles you to do certain things, even the idea of owning land or not owning land, if land could even be owned in the first place. Um, But right from the get-go, the definition of a person here is absolutely making a distinction between the lowest marches of society and the highest marches of society.
1: Next, let's define natural law. This expression, natural law, or jus naturale, was largely used in the philosophical speculations of the Roman jurists of the Antonine Age and was intended to denote a system of rules and principles for the guidance of human conduct which, independently of enacted law or of the systems peculiar to any one people – might be discovered by the rational intelligence of man and would be found to grow out of and conform to his nature, meaning by that word his whole mental, moral, and physical constitution. The point of departure for this conception was the Stoic doctrine of a life ordered according to nature, which in its turn rested upon the purely supposititious existence in primitive times of a state of nature. That is, a condition of society in which men universally were governed solely by a rational and consistent obedience to the needs, impulses, and promptings of their true nature, such nature being as yet undefaced by dishonesty, falsehood, or indulgence of the baser passions. So in
0: some ways, you could almost view the idea of the definition of natural law that you just put forward as the polar opposite of what you're going to encounter if you're dragged into a courtroom in the modern age. Um, And they're using words like rational, um, logical, um, these kinds of things. And for my money, um, anything in this vein is much closer to some semblance of a sane idea of law. And again, the polar opposite of what we actually encounter when we go into a courtroom now.
1: Now, this term they just used in the last definition, jus naturale, the natural law or law of nature, law or legal principles supposed to be discoverable by the light of nature or abstract reasoning or to be taught by nature to all nations and men alike, or law supposed to govern men and peoples in a state of nature, for example, in advance of organized governments or enacted laws. This concept originated with the philosophical jurists of Rome and was gradually extended until the phrase came to denote a supposed basis or substratum common to all systems of positive law and hence to be found in greater or less purity in the laws of all nations. And conversely, they held that if any rule or principle of law was observed in common by all peoples with whose systems they were acquainted, it must be a part of the jus naturale or derived from it. Thus, the phrases just naturally and just gentium came to be used interchangeably.
0: So what a common sense world, right? Um, th- this is much closer to, to sanity. Uh, you know, they're basically saying that, you know, we could go to this other country and lo and behold, look, these guys are exercising a law that we recognize and it was logically derived from nature where there is no law. Um, we've come a long way from there, Jason.
1: That we have. And the whole point that we're kind of saying here is in the ancient civilized world, if you went from one place to the other, the laws would be very, very close because just to boil it all down, it made sense to be this way.
0: Well, I think also, you know, if you were going to logically work this out, you're probably talking about a time before what we call science has come to bear. So the natural sciences or things that you might call alchemy or these other things are in place. And again, these are all based on the observation of nature or the nature of a living human being, these types of ideas. And to beat that dead horse so hard that his legs fall off, there is no lie in nature. And this will never true of the law that is made by men currently mostly admiralty law uh, in the part of the world i live in
1: now outside of black's law dictionary we can further define natural law a theory that says there is a set of rules inherent in human behavior and human reasoning that governs human conduct natural law is pre-existing and is not created in courts by judges many schools of thought think that it is passed to man through a divine presence Philosophers and theologians throughout history have differed in their interpretations of natural law, but in theory, natural law should be the same throughout time and across the world because it is based on human nature, not on culture or customs. The opposite of natural law is positive law or man-made law. Positive law may be based on natural law, but not the other way around. Positive or man-made laws include laws such as the speed at which individuals may drive on the highway and the age at which individuals may legally purchase and consume alcohol. While natural law typically applies to philosophy, it is also extensively used in theoretical economics.
0: Gosh, so much here, Jason. It cracks me up how everything's always branded, you know, to get your mind skewed. Positive law. Well, you know, you just heard everything we said. Wouldn't a better description be negative law? But the idea here at the root of what we're talking about is completely common sense. It's almost like saying if I go to any country, I know the person I'm talking to, the living human being, bleeds in the same way I do. Probably they want very similar things out of life. They want a better life for their children. Um, they all these things that we have in common, and that's what you know. That's what we're pointing at here. And then you go ahead and close out and talk about theoretical economics and How many times recently have we said in the modern era when I hear the word theory or theoretical, I instantly echo go BS through my head because that's what it means to me.
1: Now, an even simpler form of natural law could just be said to be the very nature of the fabric of the universe. For instance, I kick this pencil off the table and it's going to fall to the ground. Things like that. The very laws of nature can be called natural law, and a lot of people go into far greater detail on what exactly would define that, but I think it's pretty simple to say that if you jump off a cliff, you're going to die. It's those kinds of things. These are the natural laws. You're not going to get around it.
0: So self-evident, you know, clear on the face of it, common sense, logical things that could be respected, things that have honor, not
1: fictions. Now, something we've gone over before in detail, which we won't do again, but just redress here, is the seven hermetic principles, which can be very much said to be the huge basis of the real natural law. The principles of truth are seven. He who knows these understandingly possess the magic key before whose touch all the doors of the temple fly open. And that is from the Kybalion. The seven Hermetic principles upon which the entire Hermetic philosophy is based are as follows. The principle of mentalism. The principle of correspondence. The principle of vibration. The principle of polarity. The principle of rhythm the principle of cause and effect, and the principle of gender. And if you take a moment, ladies and gentlemen, to think about all those seven things, that pretty much will define the universe in which you live.
0: That's right. From my point of view, these things are not arguable. If you go at them logically, you will find that they exist. But what's very interesting about this is when you see it stated over and over that the seven hermetic principles are probably in some way foundational to natural law. There's another thing the seven hermetic principles are foundational to, and that's natural science. So it is so kind of basic in the existence of living things, that not only is it foundationally providing a thing called law or how we can conduct ourselves, it is also driving all the natural sciences. So think about that. There's something to be said here.
1: All right, so hopefully we've given you a pretty accurate description of what natural law is. It's the universe around you and how it works. Now we can start talking about law as it would possibly have been formed over the centuries as far as governance, I think would be a safe way of saying this. And the first thing I would like to bring up is the original seven Noahide laws. The first one is idolatry is forbidden. Man is commanded to believe in the one God alone and worship only him. The second one, incestuous and adulterous relations are forbidden. Human beings are not sexual objects, nor is pleasure the ultimate goal of life. Three, Murder is forbidden. The life of a human being, formed in God's image, is sacred. Four, cursing the name of God is forbidden. Besides honoring and respecting God, we learn from this precept that our speech must be sanctified, as that is the distinctive sign which separated man from the animals. And I think right there in that law, you can derive the term words have meaning. Right. Right. 5. Theft is forbidden. The world is not ours to do with as we please. 6. Eating the flesh of a living animal is forbidden. This teaches us to be sensitive to cruelty to animals. This was commanded to Noah for the first time, along with the permission of eating meat. The rest were already said to have been given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And 7. Mankind is commanded to establish courts of justice, and a just social order to enforce the first six laws and enact any other useful laws or customs.
0: Well, at the very end of that, you can see, you know, whenever these ideas began, began how far we've come from it a just social order. There is nothing about the law that is practiced in my part of the world now that has any idea of justice. It just isn't. It's random. Not only that, what you can be chucked in jail for in one state, um, you walk away scot-free in another state. It's completely random. But when we break down the idea behind the Noahide laws, and I'm glad Jason included these because I got so many uh, emails asking about this, um, let's take a minute to look at the idea of organized religion which is going to tie closely to how most people ever get exposed to these ideas. Organized religions are basically corporations. Not only are they corporations, they are sanctioned and given their rights, so to speak, from an overarching corporation called a government. And once we start talking about corporations, uh, you should understand what we're talking about. These are corruptions. That's what a corporation is. The whole idea of it is a thing without life that has been given the rights of a person. But even in the first point here, Jason started to outline idolatry is forbidden. We can still go to parts of the world like the Middle East uh, where they don't include idolatry even in their art. They don't draw pictures of human beings or any living thing in in some places. And yet when you walk into any Western church, which in fact is probably being driven by a religion that's a corporation, what do you see in there? Idols. So these basic tenets from the very book they claim to follow, well, yeah I mean, you can put it together. You can see what happens. But as we get down into this, it's no nonsense. You know, murder is forbidden. No one ever needs to be told. Um, there's the idea of mala in se in, in law these days, and it's bad, bad on the face of it. In other words, you would never have to pull a youngster aside and say, hey, I need to tell you today just so you understand, killing people isn't cool, it's wrong. You never need to do that because the young person already already understood it. And in the Latin, that's referred to, if I'm getting it right, mala in se, Um, I may have that backwards with another one, which basically says wrong on the face of it. But as we get down to the distinctive things in here, as Jason pointed out, um, language is a key, key thing, and it is, in fact, what separates us from the animals. So if you can separate the ideas here from the actual corporate religions that currently house them, there's common sense in a lot of this stuff.
1: So this could definitely be seen by anyone that this would have been an early basis for laws in early civilizations. Of course, we challenge a lot of the mainstream historical ideas of when these things took place, but there always had to have been a place where this all started, so this makes sense to me. Just who knows exactly how long ago it was. That's something, of course, we're always exploring and trying to figure out. But next we start getting into something called civil law, and this goes back to Roman times when Emperor Justinian codified all of the empire's laws in the 6th century CE. Civil law was subsequently revived in much of medieval Europe and serves as the foundation for the legal systems of countries like France, Spain, and Portugal, along with many of their former colonies, including the province of Quebec and the state of Louisiana, which both exist in countries that are otherwise dominated by common law tradition. Civil law has also been used by non-European countries that were never colonized, such as Russia and Japan, as the basis of their own legal reforms. Common law places much less of an emphasis on precedent than it does on the actual codification of the law. Civil law systems rely on a large legal code that is constantly updated and which establishes legal procedures, punishments, and what can and cannot be brought before a court." In a civil law system, a judge merely establishes the facts of a case and then judges that case based on the procedures laid down by the legal code. As a result, precedent and judicial decisions have limited influence in a civil law system. Rather, lawmakers, scholars, and legal experts who help craft the legal code hold much more sway over how the legal system is ultimately administered.
0: So in my ideas Jason civil laws where we start to see common sense in the rearview mirror getting further and further away so consider this so every year as it is stated in this bullet point thousands presumably more laws are put on the books which by logical extension means that there is no person alive that could possibly understand All the things that have been added since the beginning of time. So when you get to the idea of a judge, these are the legal codes and laws and all these precedents that bind them. Is it possible that that judge understands all that has been written and added to the civil legal code? I would suggest that no, no way in hell not possible for any person to remember or understand that many things. And so right there and then, you understand that logic does not reside in these ideas. So what will happen in sometimes is a judge will say this, and then later on it'll be challenged, and they'll find out that judge was wrong. This is not common sense. This is no way to conduct yourself, in my view, uh, when, when we're talking about law. It just, it's completely illogical.
1: When I read a definition like this, the first thing I think of is the tax codes of the United States. And if you've ever seen just how much there is to that, from what I understand, it is so convoluted that you could give the same paperwork to five different accountants and they'll come up with five different answers just because the law is so not clear. And, th- and this is where you see the problem coming in and what we're trying to get at here. This isn't necessarily the best way to do things.
0: Well, I think in the in terms of the of the uh, the tax code, I think it's that way on purpose, right? I mean, we may have to do a show in the future that shows how we got. Uh, the idea of income tax or paying tax to the government, uh, what was required by law to implement it and what actually happened. So in my estimation, when you get these things that you can't possibly get your arms around, like you said, three different people will come up with three different conclusions. I think the ambiguity is built in there on purpose so that people won't discover the truth of what's actually gone on.
1: Next, let's actually define common law. As distinguished from the Roman law, the modern civil law, the canon law, and other systems as well. The common law is that body of law in juristic theory, which was originated, developed, and formulated, and is administered in England, and has obtained among most of the states and peoples of Anglo-Saxon stock.
0: You know... When you hear people in the modern era talk about common law, you start to hear ideas like there's basically, and I may not get this exactly right, I've been very busy with the website, Um, correct me if you know better, Jason, that the idea is like if you haven't hurt anyone, you haven't broken a contract, Or you haven't caused loss to someone else, then you haven't broken a law. And so the idea to, for my part of common law is common sense. Very easy for a society to understand, you know, what's correct and what's not in a situation like this. And not only that, the idea of common law, in my view, starts to lean more towards concern for the human beings that are, you know, subject to law.
1: The easiest way to think of it is things have been figured out before and the cases can be decided based off of the things that have made sense before. So you have case upon case over the years being leaned upon for whatever is coming up now. That's what I take a lot of this to mean.
0: Right. And you know, then there's the whole idea of what I mentioned before. You know, It wasn't time too long ago. If you were caught smoking a joint in Texas, you could go to jail. And meanwhile, at the same exact day, same exact time of the day, someone in California is caught by a police officer smoking pot. And the cop may say, hey, man, don't do that. Go on your way. And this is what we're talking about. It's arbitrary. And being arbitrary is no way, in my view, to, to have a set of laws that are supposed to show
1: us all how to conduct ourselves. All right, to further define common law, it comes from medieval England, specifically in the aftermath of the Norman Conquest of 1066. Because common law is the foundation of the English legal system, it has been exported to many countries that have had historical ties with England, such as the United States, and much of the Commonwealth. The distinguishing characteristic of common law is that it is based more on precedent than a codified set of laws and regulation. Judges hold immense power in a common law system, since the decisions that a court makes are then used as a precedent for future court cases. While common law systems do have laws that are created by legislators, it is up to judges to interpret those laws and apply them to individual cases. To do this, judges rely on the precedents set by previous courts. In common law countries, certain courts, such as the Supreme Court of the United States, have the ability to strike down laws that were passed by legislators if those laws violated the law of the land, for example, the Constitution of the United States. So I think right off the bat here, it's pretty obvious the difference between natural law and common law. I have no idea why anyone might get these confused, but I think they're very distinctly and obviously different.
0: Right. And as we go forward and get some more supposed experts in the door to talk about the ideas we've been covering in the past few episodes, uh, I'm really interested to know, um, factually, without a shadow of doubt, is it possible to walk into a courtroom where you're – supposedly going to be treated under admiralty law and somehow demand your rights to be treated as if it was a common law court and these types of ideas. Um, that's really where I want to get to on all this, Jason.
1: Now a huge place where a lot of this law that came to be today is actually from Magna Carta which was also called Magna Carta Libertatum or the Great Charter of Freedom. Now this is an English legal charter originally issued in the year 1215, and it was written in Latin. Magna Carta required King John of England to proclaim certain rights pertaining to nobles and barons, respect certain legal procedures, and accept that his will could be bound by the law. It explicitly protected certain rights of the king's subjects, whether free or fettered, most notably the writ of habeas corpus, allowing appeal against unlawful imprisonment. The writ of habeas corpus and subjuciendum is a legal action through which a person can seek relief from the unlawful detention of him or herself or of another person. Magna Carta has been the most significant early influence on the extensive historical process that led to the rule of constitutional law today in the English-speaking world and France. Magna Carta influenced the development of the common law and many constitutional documents, including the United States Constitution. In the period from 1224 to 1618, many clauses were renewed throughout the Middle Ages and continued to be renewed as late as the 18th century.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy thing when you're reading bullet points like this and, you know, you're talking about unlawful imprisonment. That tells you something about the form of law being practiced when unlawful imprisonment is even possible. But I'll let you keep pushing because we're about to touch on something which we have been covering quite thoroughly through these past episodes and which I hope in the next episode we can shed a little more actual, I won't say remedial, but the light of remedy in some way, shape or form. Go ahead. So
1: we discussed natural law first, then civil law, and then common law. But way back when, there was also something called maritime admiralty law. As we've previously discussed in multiple episodes, travel and trade on the waters between early civilizations led to the development of laws to deal with any trade disputes and all of the goods and services and money being exchanged and all that sort of thing. Very, very, very important this was to the early development of civilization.
0: As far as I can tell, the whole idea of what we might call maritime law or admiralty law is about making money. Um, not only is it about making money, it seems to be, and I don't know, maybe you can chime in here, Jason. It seems to be the form of law we're faced with if we just blindly walk into a courtroom. Where are you at on all that?
1: I am still trying to nail down exactly where that came from, because if you just go in there and blurt that out... As so many people have tried, it's just going to get stomped out. I think that we need more research, and I would really like to get some more experts on who have actually dealt with this more. And as we're going to get into, definitely into the second hour, there are things that went on, especially in the 20th century, that seems to have tied the noose around our necks as the years went by, it seemed like things were set up in a certain way to really get us into a system where even if it's not literally maritime admiralty law, they've got us in this corporate identity thing. And that's what we're doing here is to try and figure out the details of how this all worked. And we're not there yet, but hopefully just walking through all this, it helps to paint at least a bit of a clearer picture of really the, the insane paperwork world that we are completely and utterly tied into now.
0: So, yeah, thanks for the clarification. Um, I think you you pulled that back into a sensible spot pretty well right there. So let me ask you this. Do you agree that basically the idea of admiralty law or maritime law is basically it's about money?
1: Yeah, it absolutely seems to. Because way back when, especially, the countries that existed at the time wouldn't really have been able to survive without that early trade. So that was one of the most important things to them, especially when it came to things like food. A lot of countries just couldn't support their populations, especially their early Roman Empire, without getting food from other places. So these laws absolutely were right up there at the top of importance, not just the laws of the land and governing the people for whatever nonsense they might have been doing, but absolutely the exchange of money. And think about this. If different countries, especially way back when, are doing business, they're each going to have their own mode of exchange, right? They're, they're going to have their own currency, But there had to have been an understanding of what equated to what, and something had to govern that. You couldn't just make it up something different every time. Something had to be valued to something else. So, of course, they had to have some sort of very distinct way of governing the modicums of exchange.
0: I I agree wholeheartedly, and basically, again, what we're talking about here is commerce, right? It's, it's about goods. It, it's about what's in the hold of that ship. But let me ask you one more question before we move on. Would you agree with all we've done here over these past episodes that when you currently walk into a courtroom, in most cases, uh, it's about money. It's about fines. Um, you know, we've even covered the fact that apparently a prosecutor has to bring his checkbook um, in case he loses into the court. So where are you at with that? When you walk into a modern legal situation
1: before the magistrate, what's driving that? Is it is it money? It definitely seems to be because even if there is a jail sentence involved, as far as I understand it, there's always a dollar amount attached to that. And of course, how often do you see people who are wealthy and have a lot of influence in society they're able to buy their way out of it and not have to serve the time depending upon how public the case and and just how dreadful of a thing they may have done
0: even in the research i'm doing now i've uncovered things where there's claims like if you buy a bond in the area you live that the police can never throw you in jail because you're already bonded these types of ideas if all these assumptions we just put forward are correct on any level This is where I want to try to go in the remaining episodes where we tackle this. Is there a way to remove yourself from this kind of commerce-based, money-driven, no-justice-involved system? Is there another way? Is there a way we can conduct ourselves? Is there certain things we can know to do and say that will alleviate us from this completely irrational kind of fictitious system? But anyhow, back to you.
1: So, to finish defining out maritime admiralty law for anybody who may be new to this concept, since seaborne transport was one of the earliest channels of commerce in the ancient civilized world, rules for resolving financial disputes involving maritime trade were developed early in what is called recorded history, which, of course, is always arguable. Early historical records of these laws include the Rhodian Law, of which no primary written specimen has survived, but is alluded to in other legal texts, such as Roman and Byzantine legal codes, and later the customs of the Consulate of the Sea or the Hanseatic League. In southern Italy, the Ordimenta et Consuetudo Maris of 1063 at Trani, as well as the Amalfian Laws, were in effect from very early on. Henry of Bracton, an English cleric and jurist in the 1200s, noted that admiralty law was also used, and take note of this, folks, as an alternative to the common law in Norman England, which previously required voluntary submission to it by entering a plea seeking judgment from the court. Now, when I found that little tidbit of information, that was the first thing that keyed me off, that maybe this is how maritime admiralty law got into the court systems.
0: This was a key find. And again, we're going to need to find some experts in the field to try to put a stamp of something we can trust on. But I mean, there it is, Jason. Admiralty law was also used as an alternative to common law. But then it goes on to say, which previously required voluntary submission. So if I'm understanding this correctly... There was a common law court, but voluntarily you could say, let's use admiralty law. And at this point in time, it seems like we're finding the clickover point where you're not even asked anymore. You're walking in there and guess what? They're bringing admiralty law to bear and common law is out the window. Uh, Do you agree with
1: that? I think that's a very distinct possibility. And what I've been looking for since we really started digging into this is if indeed the modern court systems are under maritime admiralty law and all the legalese attached to that, At some point in our past, it had to have infiltrated the other systems that would have been used. And I'm really seriously wondering if this is the point where it could have started creeping in and just sort of took over as things went by. I haven't proven that yet, but it had to have happened somewhere. And since we definitely can understand that going to court means you're going to pay out the wazoo in money and admiralty law is commerce, these things all seem to tie together in some way.
0: Admiralty law, in my view, uh, is as we see it now has justice is no concern, and that's not part of what's being done there. But I think it's key here that you put a supposed date of 1063, which is arguable all day, uh, in the timeline work we've done. But better yet, you narrowed it down to Norman England. So we'll have to keep that in mind as we move forward, Jason.
1: Right, and of course, English law would have been a direct influence on what became United States law. The original Articles of Confederation were written based off of Magna Carta and all that, and then the later United States Constitution. Now, again, this is a very convoluted thing, because we have the later, slight rewrite of the Constitution, where they changed the words of and for, that supposedly did change everything over to corporation. And I've seen arguments on both sides of that fence as well. This is all still very convoluted, and unless we can, like you were suggesting, get someone who's literally... Pass judgment on these things in a legal court of law, it's hard to know exactly where these things really stand, because I, I wonder very seriously if there's disinformation put out there so that people who are into the whole sovereign citizen movement or patriot movement or whatever terminology you want to use, that it's all thrown out there to confuse the living hell out of them so that if they do go into court stumbling and bumbling, they're going to say just a whole bunch of nonsense and the, and the judge is going to pass judgment on them. And that's going to be that they're not going to get out of it because they have this set of beliefs that are completely and utterly wrong. So God forbid, we would never tell anybody, Hey, this is what it is. Exactly. This is how you get out of it. No, that's not what we're here to do. We're trying to unravel this. And I don't think we've had anyone on who's knows a hundred percent yet, but I'd say the people are definitely taking time to unravel the mysteries, Clint especially. He's really got a good grip on a lot of this, but I think that there's still more to discover in regards to all of this.
0: I agree. Everything we've laid down has a common a common basis, which is reechoed over time, and that is the problem, Jason. How much of these things could possibly uh, not be fleshed out enough? Where if you try to implement them and say some way, shape, or form, they harm you more than they don't harm you. But you know, even the, even the ideas that all these things came from a place called England to a place called America, it never ceases to amaze me the the obvious things that are in our face. Here, here's one for you. So all these people. We're fed up with England, this bad place. It's so bad, we're going to get on ships and leave it. But the place we go to, you know what we're going to name it? We're going to name it New England. So this place we hated... Um, We're going to go name the new place we went to. And by the way, we're going to name all the cities the same, Portsmouth, Bristol, over and over and over, all these things from this place we couldn't stand and had to actually leave. We come to this new place. And you can begin to see the illogical nature of the history we've been handed, and the law is tied up in all this. And again, Jason, I hope to heck we can get someone like a retired judge or someone at that level uh, and go with these ideas and maybe get somewhere that we can trust.
1: Now, the problem here is I've actually asked lawyers on occasion about some of this stuff, and they just blow it off like it's nothing. That's right. If indeed they know, they're not talking. But more than likely, the common lawyer, you know, the one you see on billboards all over the place trying to just get money out of a company, they probably don't know this stuff. They're just going at it from the same point of view over and over and over again. Someone was injured. They want monetary compensation. Done. This stuff goes much deeper. This is looking under the hood of the system, if you will, and that's what we're trying to figure out. The problem is, unlike a Model T, when you look under the hood and it's a pretty obvious, simple system, you're looking under the hood of a 2018 car that's loaded with computers and gadgets that make no frickin' sense to anybody, unless you're specifically trained to understand it.
0: And while there are people who have been looking at this for some time as a larger group of people who live in this world, uh, we're kind of in the infancy where many, many people are becoming interested. So we will further this. But anyhow, Jason, we're getting close to the top of the hour. You want to wrap up so we can get an intro on this?
1: We are absolutely at the top of the hour here. And in hour two, we're going to start doing a bit of a timeline for the 20th century of the United States and painting the picture of how things were set in motion to get us to the point where we are today, where no matter what, there is a legal fiction that we have, and that's what they go after. I can't prove 100% what ties into what as far as all these bonds and all these things that people talk about, but there is a legal fiction that is separate from you, that, that much we've proven. And we're going to show how the laws that were enacted starting in the 1920s and all the way up through the decades to today, where we are literally just a legal corporation, that that's what they put on trial when you go to court.
0: That's right. And legal fictions have no concern for justice. As a matter of fact, those fictions, those fictitious ideas were created to control and to extort money, as far as I can tell. But anyhow, Jason, that does bring episode 112 to a close for the first hour. At the posting of this episode, there will be 112 free hours of content over at CrowTriple7Radio.com that do not need a login. From this point forward, that website will be improved and improved and improved, and it is wholly private it now. There is no data collection and as far as I can tell, I am free from the influence of European Union guidelines. So there it is. Hope to see you all over at 7 radiocom for the second hour. And the next show, we're going to have another guest in here to try to further clarify this drum we've been beating on to try to get to some semblance of actual remedies that people can use to try to seek justice on some level. Because Lord knows, when you find yourself in front of the magistrate, it's going to be about penalties and money. There it is, man. Cheers.